ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You right, Scope? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting a harm. Before he never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get him, but the Lord never will. We're casting away the only way they know how. With a little more mojo than the Lord will allow. Hey everyone and welcome to or welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. To bring you up to speed, if you are boarding the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, you should know what you're in for. We find (laughs) interesting people from all walks of life People that we think have their mojo working in or out of work, we talk to them, we extract what they do so well to get their mojo working so that we can get our mojo working or share it with others who need to get their mojo working. Driving the big red bus, the man with the chuckle, is Chief Engineer Robbo. Welcome to this week's show, mate. Thanks, mate. I shouldn't laugh, but it just occurred to me that every week you tell them the good stuff, but keep the bad stuff to yourself. <laughs> no, normally, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that piled up in the corner of the studio. Uh, all right, we got a big show lined up this week, including a cracking lesson of rock at the back end of the show, folks. So uh, buckle up, let's get in the road. The Mojo Radio Show. This week's guest is Dermot Crowley, who's the founder of Adapt Productivity. Now, I've got to say, when you go back through our five seasons of the Mojo Radio Show, productivity, performance, and getting sorted is actually one of our most popular topics. So I think this week's going to be a ripper. This guy's got a good understanding of what we can do as busy people and busy executives in order to better manage our time work out our priority and how to deal with email, which is certainly a burden for a lot of us in today's modern workplace. He's a best-selling author. He wrote a book called Smart Work, and I recently read his new book called Smart Teams, which we're going to dig into today. So having said all that, Dermot, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So Dermot, the new book is Smart Teams, and when I got my copy 
I was curious about this because when you start a business, write a book, or you help somebody, you essentially are solving a problem. And I'm wondering whether the title of the book, Smart Teams, means there's a problem with teams not being smart on the whole. What was your premise behind writing the book and calling it Smart Teams? So, you know, I guess the first thing to say is I want to be, you know, really careful and and, uh, make sure that people don't think that I'm saying that their, their teams are dumb or they're not smart. Um, it, it was it was a follow-on from Smart Work, um, so we decided Smart Teams would be a, a really nice, um, catchy uh, title, but it would also talk to the problem. And the problem is this: I, I've worked for, gone on seventeen years now on personal productivity, and, and I suppose I've made a name for myself helping individuals to manage their own email, their own priorities, their own schedule, and their own time. But the the challenge that I have been frustrated with is the fact that I can train people uh, every day of the week and those people will get very excited about their new system and they will go back into a workplace which quite often kills their productivity all over again. So I reckon that we need to still teach people how to work more productively on an individual level, but we also need to look at how people work together and make sure that we're not uh, working in a way that actually just drags other people's productivity down. And when we're using tools like email, when we're having meetings, when we're collaborating on projects, there is lots of opportunity for us to kill other people's productivity. So I guess that's what it's about. It's about lifting the productivity focus from the individual to how we're actually working together. And I've, I've heard you say that, Dermot, and I'm curious that You've said that we do things that drag other people's productivity down. What sorts of things should we be aware of either as a leader or as someone within a team or even at home as a lot of home offices or digital nomads? What are the things that we could be doing dragging other people's productivity down? So I think just to take the first group of people that you mentioned, their leaders, I think you know most of my clients would tend to be um, uh, corporates. And whether you're talking about the leader at the very top of an organization or a manager within the organization, I think the first thing is leaders need to see productivity as a leadership issue. And they need to be leading this stuff from the front. So there's no point sending your team on personal productivity training if you as a leader are not going to support that or even worse, you're actually a part of the problem. And the sort of things that I I tend to see people do that drag other people's people's productivity down would be, number one, a really poor use of email. So um, email has become the the main way that we tend to communicate in the corporate workplace and and yeah there's talk about other tools like slack and and that coming online but really email is is here to stay for the next decade i reckon and you know i'm working with people who are getting hundreds of emails every day and and that's a group problem it's it's uh, the individual's problem they need to learn how to manage that but if they're getting 300 emails a day, there's a serious problem happening within the team. And the chances are the leader of that team is just letting it happen and may think that this is just the way it is around here, but it doesn't need to be. 
And I reckon there's a lot of email noise that we could actually get rid of if we were more thoughtful with how we use the tool and when we use the tool. So that'll be one example. I saw a McKinsey report recently, Dermot, that said that office workers, if we start on that category of person, office workers spend almost a third of their time dealing with their inboxes. And then just this week I saw a blog that questioned whether the zero inbox was important or not. What's the answer for people who are getting 200 a day and they're going, mate, it's just impossible, I get swamped. If I sit in the meeting for half an hour, I come out, I've got to have 50 emails. What are the tangible things we do to fix this? If we're spending a third of our day on email, what are the tangible things we can do and take from this call today to put in to help us reduce that load? Absolutely. So I reckon the first thing we need to do is reduce the, the volume of email in the first place. So if we're getting to maybe 300 emails a day, uh, we need to reduce that. We need to stop emails coming in. And that can happen in a number of ways. One very simple thing that you can do is have a conversation with your team and get clear about what should we be sending each other, how should we be using things like CC and Reply All, and what are the other options that we have available to communicate information that doesn't mean that we're sending an email around to 15 people in the team every time. So that, that's, that's number one, but a, a second strategy to reduce email noise would be to use the tools that are built into whatever you might be using for your email. So it's going to be either Microsoft Outlook or maybe Gmail. There are filters and rules built into these tools that help you to block unnecessary emails. So I'd probably get about 120 emails a day, but I only see maybe 50 of them because a lot of them I've, I've automatically set up to either delete or to automatically file because they're emails that I might want to receive, but I don't need to see them in my inbox. So that's what I call a noise reduction. Uh, what sort of stuff? That it will be things like newsletters. Um, I want to receive certain newsletters because it helps me to keep across my, uh, my, my topics, if you like. But I don't need to see them in my inbox because they're not an actionable item. But it is useful to maybe have a reading folder and I divert all my newsletters into my reading folder. So when I get on the plane to Singapore on Wednesday, I can, I can get out my iPad, I can go to my reading folder and I can read a few newsletters. So I do that when I'm ready to do it rather than having them intrude on my time in my inbox. Sounds like we were lucky to get Dermot on the show, Gaz. We, we I emailed him. I'm glad he replied. Yeah, there's the, uh, we got a new folder. Um, is there research that shows that the level of emails is proportionate to the level of stress for an executive? Look, I've seen research that reckons that uh, if you have more than 50 emails in your inbox, your stress levels begin to rise. Um, I've seen a lot of um, examples of stress from uh, overfull inboxes and uh, the sheer volume. So I'm working with people every day who are they're just at the end of the tether when it comes to um, managing the work. And, and the big problem is that these are people who don't get paid to do emails. They get paid to do a function to either manage people or to um, sell or whatever it might be. 
but half the time is is uh, taken up with just trying to keep on top of this stuff. And when you give them a solution, it you just see the stress drop off them, and the, and it's almost like a, a visual, you know, shoulder, and their shoulders come up, and they sit up straighter, and they feel like I can face the day now because I'm not overwhelmed by my email. Now, whether inbox zero is the solution or not, there isn't it, it, you know, for some people it is, for some people it isn't. But it's it's getting in control of your inbox. That's the key. Now I'm going to flip this around and say, is it is it the case for some people where they need a big inbox to feed their ego? And I'm wondering whether some people, even though they may know some of these things they kind of still like the fact that they see that little red dot with 100 written in it because that makes them feel important and the world can't survive without them and they have to be CC'd on everything. And if they get off the plane, there's no emails, they would basically panic. Is ego a factor with this? Look, I reckon it is for some people, not for everyone. Um, I'll I'll illustrate it with uh, a story about the worst inbox that I've ever come across personally. Um, This person had 129,546 emails in their inbox. (laughs) And it was kind of out of control, extremely out of control. Now, he had about 12 years' worth of emails in his inbox. He never filed anything. He never deleted anything. He just left it all there. And... He was the IT director of a fairly large organization. And the worst thing was he was kind of proud of it. He was kind of going, yeah, baby, that's, you know, that's as good as it gets. That's the way I I, I roll around here. The problem was his team couldn't trust him because they'd send him an email. He wouldn't respond because it was just lost in the quagmire of, of email. So... I reckon there is ego involved for some people. There's definitely control issues involved for others. Yes, yeah. And, and a lot of people feel that they, they leave everything in their inbox because then it's kind of close at hand and, and why would I bother moving it out of my inbox because that just takes me time. I just leave it all there. But I, I truly believe that when you've got an overfull inbox, not only do your stress levels rise, but there's a greater chance that actions slip through the cracks and, and you become more reactive rather than proactive in how you approach your work. So that's why I personally uh, help people to, to get to zero, not every day, but, you know, maybe on a weekly basis. And it, it's very easy. It's very simple once you get into the right rhythm with it. So we've already talked about some practical things we could do. There is somebody who has a team of three or somebody else has a team of 50. And they, from today, want to set up a good email culture, either for themselves as a leader or a team member, and also for the individuals who are in the business because that leader wants to maximise productivity. What does a good email culture look like? So I reckon it's one where, number, so it's firstly people have had a discussion about how to use email and we've all got a common understanding of when and, and how it's needed. I, I ran a session for a team probably about three or four months ago in, in one of the big banks and the senior executive, who was quite a senior executive, um, he was in the room with his leadership team. And we were running this training on email management and um, we started to talk about the use of CC within the team. And most people were being absolutely 
bombarded by CCs. Every, everyone was seeing everyone else on everything. And the, the senior director said, guys, just so you know, I never, ever look at any of your CCs. I will only ever look at an email if it's directed um, to me. And if it's in the CC, it actually gets moved into a, a different folder that I call CC emails. And everyone in his team went, oh, really? So you never look at our CCs? And he went, no. So you don't actually want us to CC you? And he went, no. And I, I realized that this was the first time as a team that they, they'd ever had a conversation about this. And their team were always copying in, him in on things because they thought that's what he wanted. And he was saying, no, I don't, I don't need to see that. I trust you. And, you know, we, we, you're just generating emails for no reason. So I reckon, number one, have a conversation. Um, number two, I reckon the teams need what I call team agreements, uh, what, what some organizations would call email protocols. But we just need to have a standard set of, of guidelines around what we consider to be best practice when it comes to email use. And again, that we'll talk about CC, reply all, and how to write an effective email, because a lot of people write um, either emails that are too short and uh, not particularly meaningful. They'll write emails with very poor subject lines, which makes it harder for the reader to process them. Or they'll write really lengthy emails and, and they'll, they, they won't use punctuation. They'll bury actions in the, the fifth paragraph of the email. And they just make it hard for the reader to quickly make a decision about what needs to happen with this. So this is creating productivity friction. Every time we send a poorly written email to other people, it's actually dragging their productivity down. So when we get good at this stuff as a team, we start to uh, make it easy to work together and we reduce the burden on everyone in the team. And if we all did that to each other, then we would all be more productive. Where does the, um, some of the apps like WhatsApp and those team sort of apps that are out there fall into this now? Do, do, they, do they play a part or is, is sort of keeping it all email in the one place a better way to go? Yeah, look, I think they do play a part. And I'll be really honest here that, and say that I haven't quite formed a full opinion on this yet. Um, one of the things that I did with the book Smart Teams was I recognised that I was getting into territory here that um, – I wasn't necessarily an expert in. So I am an expert when it comes to productivity and when it comes to email management. But when it comes to, say, creating cultural changes, I'm not. I'm, that's not what, what I do. But in a way, this book is about cultural change. So I decided to interview some experts to, um, I suppose, get their insights on this. And one of the people I talked to was a young web designer um, called Harley, who doesn't, in his organization, they don't use email internally. They, they only use email for their Luddite clients. They use Slack and similar tools for all of their communication. And it was interesting what he had to say about it. Like he, he thinks um, Slack is a far more effective tool for the on-the-go conversations that they have because you don't have things like email signatures. So you're able to see a thread of a conversation in Slack and get more context more quickly. And I think that that's true. There's certainly some upsides to this, these tools. But at the same time, I reckon that the problem is that you can have a team that switches from email to Slack or whatever tool, but they'll probably use that just as badly because it usually comes back to human error and, and human ignorance. And I, I reckon we, we really do need to have a think about 
what is the best way for us to communicate to communicate with each other and when should we be using slack and when should we be using email and i guess that's a part of the conversation that i'm beginning to explore with my clients you know it's interesting there's a, a quote in your book smart teams which i loved and it's an eddie murphy quote you said follow a stupid kid home and i bet your bottom dollar you will find stupid parents and hearing you talk dermot it just, for me, it's like Jocko Willinks from the Jocko podcast, the Navy SEAL says, everything comes back to leadership. And you can be sitting on a plane at nine o'clock at night and you will see a corporate executive who's probably in the, the you know, executive leadership role pumping out emails. The minute the plane hits the ground, they'll send off five, 10 emails. And to me, I look at that person and go, you're now setting a tone for the organisation that it's good and okay to email somebody at nine or 10 o'clock at night. And they're sitting there going, well, the boss has emailed me, I better reply. It really does come down to leadership. Regardless of what tool you use, it really is a leadership thing who set the rules and guidelines and then stick to them in order to set the game for the team. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I think that um, leaders need to be the most accountable. They, they, they need to um, help their teams to come up with a set of agreements around how they're going to work. And it's not just about email, it's about meetings, it's about how we collaborate. And they need to be the ones that hold themselves to the highest account because people will do what they do and, and um, they won't necessarily do what they say, but they will do what they do. So you get a, an executive who has a very poor email uh, regime for themselves. Why should their team manage email well when they see the senior execs not doing that? So I think it's so important. Is it about setting rules? Because I, I hear what you and Gary are talking about and, and I'll take Gary's example of an executive emailing his team at nine o'clock at night. And I get what you're saying that that's not a great regime, but if there's rules around it where he says, I might email you at nine o'clock at night, but I don't expect to reply from you until 9am tomorrow morning or Monday morning. Does that work? I reckon it does. I reckon that we've got to be flexible. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of those senior execs, they don't get near their inbox during the day because they're in meetings all day in Melbourne and the only time they get to do their emails is on the flight home so you've got to give them a break and, and, and allow them to use that time but again it comes back to having a conversation with the team to say hey there's going to be some times when I do this but I never respect I never expect a reply from you that evening um, my, my uh, expectation is that you'll get onto it in the morning or I'll set in the email a clear guideline around what I expect from you and um, it only takes a moment to do that to write in the email no reply necessary until tomorrow or get this to me by the end of the week so the expectation where that falls down sorry go ahead the expectation though Dermot is why they check in at nine o'clock at night because they're checking at nine o'clock at night because they start to fear either ego they're missing out on something or it's the expectation that stuff could come through because this this is a this is a really big rabbit hole because I would say why send it nine o'clock at night if you don't need a reply why not put it into drafts and send it first thing in the morning but it's out of your box and it is somebody else's and I've seen bosses say I don't expect you to reply but everybody does and they're replying and checking their emails at nine or ten o'clock at night 
before they go to bed, which means they go to bed with that information on their mind and we wonder why six out of ten people don't sleep well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And look, I think that just in some cases it is about fear and, and uh, you know, that again comes back to the culture of an organisation. But a lot of the time it's, it's out of... Um, it's out of ignorance and, and in a way, and I want to be careful saying this, but, but almost stupidity because I, I run a lot of workshops where, you know, when we're talking about email management, we will tell people a, a very simple thing. And I can't believe that I have to tell people to do this, but we tell people to turn off their email alerts on their email client as well as on their phone. So don't get pinged every time an email comes in. Go and check your email at regular times throughout the day. It's, it's not rocket science. And we've been talking, like not just me, but many experts in productivity have been talking about this for 20 years. And yet when I say it to people, they go, oh, my God, I had never thought of that. So often they're getting pinged at 9 o'clock at night unnecessarily because they haven't turned off the email alerts on their iPhone. It's it's a little bit silly, and, and I, I think we need to think about this. And again, the leader of the team needs to give people permission, or even further, I'd say they need to mandate it and say, hey, everyone, turn off your email alerts, because that's not the way we operate as a team, because that's a reactive way of operating but in a proactive way. Let me take this one step further. I've got clients who are overseas, Singapore, the UK, South Africa. Do I need to structure my email sending around their business hours how do i how do i work that yeah look it's always it's always a, a challenging one when you've got overseas offices and uh, it does depend on the organization I, I often find when head office or regional head offices is overseas then people don't have a lot of choice um, so, for instance, uh, um, someone that I'm working with at the moment uh, works for a, a French company and their regional head office in Singapore is pretty good when it comes to, let's say, organizing meetings in a, a time zone that will suit everyone as best they can. But their head office in Paris does not care. They will, if they want a meeting, it doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night, they will send the invite and, and the expectation is you be there or you be in trouble. So that can be a challenge and it's not easy for someone like me to come in and talk about, you know, what is best practice when they're kind of saying, well, that's all well and good, but our head office doesn't care about that. And it's not easy to change the culture of an organization on a global scale. I might be able to change a local office, but I'm not going to be able to change the whole culture of the organization unless we change amount of work. Dermot, did we leave behind any good and useful productivity tools when we went from paper diaries into digital diaries? Is there any good stuff that old school practice got left behind? Totally, totally. I actually kept on when I first cut my teeth in productivity, it was working for a time management training company in the 90s that basically had a paper diary system and we ran training around that paper diary. And I reckon the people were a lot more organized. Now, they didn't have to deal with the same volume of information as we do now. And they probably weren't as busy when it comes to the volume of meetings. But people still tended to have more rigor around how they planned their day or how they organized their priorities. And then what happened was email came into the workplace 
And everyone started using Microsoft Outlook or Lotus Notes. And they very quickly shifted from using paper diaries to electronic calendars. But what they left behind was the good process that they had around how they managed their priorities. So um, with a good paper diary system, we used to write down what we needed to do for the day and, and get clear about what needed to be done on what day. But what, what happened was when we moved to electronic, everyone started using the calendar, but they still stayed with a paper to-do list and that began to fragment how they managed their work. And it's still, you know, it amazes me that most people, and I would say probably 90% of people in the corporate workplace still use paper lists or at best an Excel spreadsheet to try and remember what they need to do rather than harnessing the power of um, the task function of Microsoft Outlook or the task function in, in Gmail, which are both very powerful task management systems and, and the, the beauty of them is they work alongside your calendars so they force you to manage your time around both your meeting workload and your priorities which is a lot healthier than just having all of your your priorities either in your head or written in a list somewhere so that that's one thing we've really left behind so let me be the devil's advocate on that because harvard and stanford universities are saying to their students don't bring ipads computers or phones to class because when you use digital devices, you are recording. When you use pen and paper, you're comprehending. If it's, It seems like, and I'm not saying this is not right, but it seems to me you are pushing more and more people to spend more and more time on their device and getting away from old school pen and paper, which is now science has shown is a better way to remember and unlock ideas and comprehension to turn content into, into knowledge and wisdom. It's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Well, it depends on how you approach it. So I, I take that on um, fully and I agree with it, but I still champion technology. So I guess the way I think about it is <laughs> I've got a good answer here, I hope. So, <laughs> I, I, I organize myself electronically, but I think on paper a lot of the time. So I do believe that we do probably think better on paper. So when I've had an idea, it's probably going to go into my mold skin. And at some stage, it might turn electronic, but that's where I, I, I often think. Now, the middle ground is this. So I, I'm not suggesting that people, you know, have their laptop out and they they think and they capture notes on their um, laptop necessarily. Some people love doing that. Some people hate it. What I tend to do is I use a hybrid. So when I go into a meeting, generally what I'll use to record my meeting notes is my iPad and my Apple Pencil. So I'm using an electronic device, but I'm still writing. And that gives me the best of both worlds because I'm, I'm able to capture notes a lot faster and I'm able to comprehend because I'm writing. But then I'm able to have all of my notes stored electronically and I can search for them with the click of a button and find them whenever I need them, which makes the information usable and, and useful. So I reckon that um, we've got the technology there. It's just that most people haven't really embraced it in the right way and they're still stuck in the paradigm of I've got a laptop, therefore I need to type notes in on my keyboard. You were right, Dermot. You nailed it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
The British rowing team some years ago had a saying before they won goals in the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And at every meeting, when somebody brought something to the table for discussion, the question was, will it make the boat go faster? And I think, in fact, I think there's a book called, Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? It's yes or no. If it does, let's talk about it. If no, get rid of it. If that principle is correct in your mind, give me, give me the most important thing that a business and or business leader needs to think about in order to make the business boat go faster. Mm, good question. So I reckon that you could apply that thinking to any interaction that we have with other people in our team. So I, I truly believe that a lot of our time, our collective time is wasted because we create noise for other people or what I call in the book um, productivity friction. And for me, it's about mindset. So I, I reckon for the British rowing team, that was their mindset. It was always coming back to a simple idea, will it make the boat go faster? Um, in, in smart teams, I talk about um, a mindset which um, uh, comes from game theory, where uh, in, the, in the movie A Beautiful Mind, John Nash has a, uh, a eureka moment, um, which is portrayed by um, Russell Crowe, where he enhances economic thinking. And the current economic thinking at the time, the 1950s, was that um, the best result comes from everyone doing what is best for themselves. And that was... Uh, that had been around for a couple of hundred years. But um, John Nash extended that by saying the best result comes from everyone doing what is best for themselves and for the group at the same time. And for me, this is a key idea when it comes to leading productivity in your organization. You need to get everyone thinking about every interaction, whether it be an email, a phone call, an interruption, a meeting, we need to think about how do we do this in a way that is productive for ourselves, but is also productive for the other people in the group. And when you approach work with that perspective and that mindset, I reckon that everyone's boat goes faster. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's a collective productivity, which is, which is greater than the sum of all of our individual productivities. Make sense? Yeah, it's a great answer and I like that. And I think uh, something I read in the book that I want you to add on to that is you suggest that leaders get, if they manage their time well in order to be more productive, the next question is, well, what's the meaningful work? Like how, what's the meaningful work that a team can be doing to truly make a difference? How do you, how do you take a team through the thinking in order to sort the meaningful work from the other stuff. Is there a process or a thinking or a methodology that you normally work with that? Yeah, look, I'll stand on the shoulders of another, uh, sorry, when I say another, a great thinker. I don't want to put myself in that category necessarily. <laughs> But a, a great thinker, a guy called Michael Bungay-Steinier, um, who wrote a book called Do More Great Work. And it, it's a very simple book, um, but a powerful message. So he, he talks about the idea that we've got bad work, we've got good work, and we've got great work. And what we need to do is eradicate the bad work from our day and 
spend more time, so as reinvest that time in, on the good work, which is our, our core role, you know, the everyday stuff we should be doing as a part of our role. But some of that time should be um, definitely invested in, in the stuff that is really impactful in our role. Now, I tend to find that number one, a lot of people are not really clear about what great work would look like in their role. And I often have to have a conversation with them and, and explore what what should you really be spending your time on? And like I don't want people to think that they have to spend 100% of their week doing great work. They just need to make sure that they're spending some of their time doing really impactful stuff. So the first thing is, let's get clear about what that would be in my role. And then the second thing I would add to it, and this is what, how I would build on Michael's work, um, I reckon that to get from bad to good work, you need prioritization. So you need to be good at prioritizing the stuff that's coming at you and getting rid of the stuff that isn't a good use of your time and then organizing the stuff that is good work. So prioritization gets you from bad to good. But what's going to get you from good to great, I reckon, is planning. Taking time out to plan and organize and, and really think about how do I create a connection between what am I trying to achieve in my role, what is the great work, and what is the thing that I need to do tomorrow that's going to move that forward. And this breaks my heart, but most organizations that I work in and most teams that I work in do not take time out to plan at the individual level. So we often plan at the organizational level, we plan at the team level, we plan at the project level, but people don't actually take an hour out each week to plan their own week or take 10 minutes out each day to focus their day. And that creates a disconnect. So you can have all the, the, the project plans in the world, that's fantastic, but unless you've got a connection between that and what you're doing tomorrow, then you're probably going to end up being driven by your inbox and you'll end up doing the good work, but you won't make time for the great work. Why does a business culture accept and almost promote urgency as a legitimate way of judging success? And it's something I saw you write about in the book is this thing where business promotes urgency and it's almost a badge of honour. That must be really detracting from the productivity and performance of a team, Dermot, and also reducing people's chance to sit and think and ponder. Why, why are we so caught up in this urgency thing? Look, I think it's, it's natural human... Um, behavior we like uh, a friend of mine Pete Cook talks about uh, this in in a book that he wrote uh, the new rules of management and he talks about the fact that when we were cavemen and women we basically prioritized um, you know according to our our instincts so when we were hungry we went out and hunted when we were being threatened by something we'd we'd fight or we'd flee and i reckon that that's still the case at some primal level we're driven by urgency because urgency is here and now. We've got to deal with it. And a lot of organizations, you know, I hear a lot of leadership teams talk about this and they say we need, we need to create a sense of urgency. But what they end up creating is what I call senseless urgency. They, they create urgency that isn't really urgent. And everyone just ends up in this cycle of you know, quick, we got to get this out. And you're right, people are not taking time out to think. And most senior managers that I work with, 
would say to me, you know what, I get paid to think and yet I don't have a moment to do it because I'm in meetings all day and then I'm on the plane trying to deal with my emails. So I reckon uh, in, in Italy um, uh, in the, in the 1990s, I think it was, there was a, a slow food movement uh, that came out and, and uh, I reckon that we, we, we need a slow work movement where people just dial down the urgency a little bit and start to prioritize by importance, not just by, by urgency. Big shift. I think we're in a pretty good place here, Dermot, because you mentioned Michael Bungay-Stania, who was our guest two weeks ago, and wow. a guy called Carl Honor, who wrote In Praise of Slow, who was one of the forefathers of the slow movement, is coming up on the show in a couple of months' time. So you've given, you've given us a feeling that we're on the right track here, which is great, <laughs> and you're just reinforcing that. Good. Something Something you wrote about, which I absolutely thought was gold, you said... And I've got to say, having sat through 20 years of culture sessions and value sessions and companies working out what they're all about, you said, rarely do we see productivity embedded into the culture, the values or the DNA of a business. And I thought, that's so true. I have very, very rarely have I ever seen productivity put down as an absolute cornerstone of our organisation. I reckon that... Is this is a you know it's a bit of a hard sell for me, um, but it's a really important one. And when I wrote my first book, Smart Work, which was about personal productivity, that was a really easy thing for people and for organisations to get their head around. So they they could categorise that and they could go, okay, this is about you know managing your email and managing priorities. Yeah, we can we can buy that. That's easy. But smart teams is a very different beast. It's, it's, a, it's about a subject that most people and organizations have never really thought about. Now, they've thought about the elements of it. So I talk about email culture. I talk about email management. I talk about meetings. They're all things that organizations have been working on for years. But they've never really thought about these things as a cultural issue and the fact that leadership teams need to lead this. But it's such an important thing, and yet there's probably training sessions done on it. But to make it a part of the cornerstone of the business Mm. and something that is led and people are employed upon it, trained upon it, it becomes a regular conversation, which actually leads me on to something else. Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, Dermot. You, in the book, you talk about purpose and Mm. teams, smart teams having a purpose to work toward. How have you noticed smart teams keep their purpose to the forefront? Because it just seems today, and we had a a guest on the show, a guy called Darren Altclass, and he wrote a book called This Way, Please. And one of the things he talked about with us is that people need to keep their brand, their promise, their story front of mind and go back to it on a regular basis because we tend to forget it as the pace of life uh, increases. Tell me how you have seen smart teams keeping purpose, like the identity of a business at the forefront of the leadership and the company itself. Yeah. 
Well, first of all, I think that it needs to link into other initiatives or other frameworks that a, an organization or a team will have in place. So did a recent bit of work with um, a fairly large organization, uh, a division within that organization, and it was a fairly large division. And the leadership team were very keen to change the culture around meetings. So the, 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 the head of the division actually declared a war on meetings. And um, they, they did a whole lot of things to try and reduce the amount of time that their staff were spending in unnecessary meetings. The work I did was a part of that. But I think um, what they found was they had they, they, these different frameworks in place to help everyone to really focus on what are we here to do and how can we stay focused on that. And then overlaid on that was a conversation about, you know, is this meeting critical to that? It's a bit, it's a bit like, does it make the boat go faster? And I guess what the team found was they needed to be constantly revisiting it and uh, making sure that they were they had the right frameworks in place down through the team at every level to have the right conversations on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. Okay, where are we at with this? Are we still on track? Are we still clear about what we're heading towards and is anything change that we need to feed down to you? What they also found was, though, and from a productivity point of view, the, the leadership team had to really put productivity on the agenda. So when they started off on this initiative, they paid lip service to it. So um, they, they were all rah-rah and they were saying, we need to reduce meetings. And it was all great for a few weeks. But then suddenly the senior leaders started to bend the rules because they needed to have meetings and, and they would say, oh, well, we'll have this meeting, but we'll bend the rules a little bit, but that's okay because this is an exception. But then suddenly there was lots of exceptions and there were often, it was the leaders who were doing it. So I was then brought back in to speak at their leadership conference. And my message was this, you guys are not leading this because you're saying one thing, but you're doing a completely different thing. And, and we did some work around that. And um, they really took that on board. And I, I just had a coaching session with two of those leaders recently. And they said, you know what, we've really changed. We really have. And this is still absolutely on our agenda. So sometimes it takes a couple of goes at it. But if the, if the leadership team have the right intentions, and I would say if the very senior leaders have the, have the courage to stand up and really, really make this happen, then, you know, over time you can create that cultural change. Just a couple of quick questions to wrap up before we let you get back to your day, Dermot. What's the greatest compliment that somebody could pay to you, if somebody was talking about knowing you, working with you, reading your stuff, what would be the greatest compliment you'd love to receive from them? Uh, it is always um, several years after I've worked with somebody for them to say to me, you know what, I'm still using not everything, but, you know, a good portion of what you taught me. Um, it's one thing, you know, at the end of the day, when you run a day's training, people, people will, you know, usually come up and say, oh, that was amazing. It's going to change my life. Even a couple of months later, it's nice to hear that they're implementing it. But when it's lasted for years, then, you know, you've truly had an impact. And I just love that. We quite often, being a productivity performance guy, 
We quite often quote the Bruce Lee, who was the movie star and Hollywood actor and martial artist. He said, it's not the daily addition, but the daily subtraction. Hack away at the unessentials. What's something you've hacked away at or taken out of your day that's had a profound effect upon your productivity of recent times? I would say that it's the paid work that I don't do anymore. And I suppose for me, this is about leverage. Uh, I'm in the, the very nice position that I, I'm very busy and I am, uh, you know, busy right into the future. But there's a level of work which is no longer the best use of my time. And one of the challenges I have, because I've written two books, Everyone Wants Me, and I, you know, my, my focus now is not so much running our day-to-day time management or personal productivity training, but to work with the leadership teams and to, to work on the cultures. That's where I add the most value. And what I've had to do is really learn to um, say no and to delegate that work to my team. And I've got a great team, but a large part of that has been educating the client to say, hey, you're not buying me. You're not buying the personality, Dermot Crowley. What you're buying is a really good system and really good people who can run that for you. And, and you know, if you're going to use me, you know, let me work with your leadership team. Let's try and make a cultural change here. But for the day-to-day training, I've got people who can do that. Now, that was a big move for me because, um, you know, when a client asks you to run a piece of work, you want to say yes. You want to please them. But when I started saying no to that work and, and delegating it, it really freed me up to um, to do what I do best, which is that more leverage work. But also, it allowed me to carve out the time to think. And I, I wouldn't have written two books unless I, I really did put time aside to deeply think about productivity and to actually write those books. And and for me, they position me even more so that I can I can do the work that I know is meaningful and not just keep running the same time management training that I've run for nearly 20 years. Here's a question for you on your deep thinking, Dermot. What don't you have figured out yet? Like what are you pondering at the moment? So we talk about productivity, productivity for leadership teams, performance within a team. What are you really thinking about right now that you don't have sorted out? that you are looking to find an answer for? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out here. It's a bit dangerous um, putting things out um, on a public platform like this, but I'm, I'm going to say it. There's a third book that I will write at some stage, and I reckon it's going to be um, Smart Life. So we have Smart Work, Smart Teams, and Smart Life is, is going to talk about – I, I kind of hate this term, but I do need to write about it – the whole work-life balance syndrome and how we can um, how we can focus our time and energy at work, but also how we can focus our time and energy at home and with our family and things like that. So there's a whole area of stuff that I've been exposed to for many years, but I haven't actually sat down and written my thoughts on that stuff yet. So I reckon that's the bit, the next big thing that I need to grapple with. Vanity Fair used to run a piece that quoted the famous Proust questionnaire. And 
the question they posed was, what is your idea of perfect happiness? For Dermot Crowley, what is, uh, what, what is your thought? What, what, what brings you perfect happiness? You know what? I just experienced it about a week and a half ago. Um, I'm just back from a, a holiday in, in Europe. And as a part of that holiday, I got to do some walking in the Italian Alps. And I reckon that I'm not a mountain climber, but I am a mountain walker. I love it. And when I'm up in those mountains and I'm doing physical exertion and I'm, you know, free, my mind is free to just absorb the scenery and I'm with a loved one because I don't tend to walk by myself, that for me is as close as it gets, I reckon. (laughs) That's, I'm visualising that. Could you get could you get a good cup of coffee out there? A good Italian cup of coffee up there, mate? Or are, you, are, we, are we too far out? Uh, they've got way? they've got refugios that serve you three course meals. It's just amazing. Oh, oh, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my sort of bushwalking. <laughs> and wine and beer, fantastic. Yeah, I'm in. Let's put that on the bucket list. Indeed. Damn it, I uh, have really enjoyed meeting you. It's been a real privilege to chat with you. For folks who want to find your books. They'll obviously want to look at your work, your blogs. Where do you send people? Where's the hub for, for Dermot Crowley? Look, uh, probably the, the business website, um, which has links to all of the books and all of our, our programs, and that is uh, adaptproductivity.com.au. Uh, if you're interested in the books, uh, you can go to the, the Wiley website, Booktopia, Amazon, and, of course, they're in all the major bookstores as well. So, um you'll usually find them pretty easily if you go to any of those locations. Well, good on you, mate. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you putting us into your calendar, your diary for today to share. And uh, it's been gold, mate. Thank you very much. But good. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And, and can I say fantastic questions, really, really insightful questions. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is a Mojo Radio Show. I'll be coming to see you. You know, we talk a lot on this show about taking the gold and using it. A couple of those things we talked about in there, I have tried myself and I reckon I've already saved myself 10% of time in my week that I spend on email in my inbox. So definitely knows what he's talking about. It's a topic that has been very popular for us in the five seasons. Whenever you talk about, in fact, I'd say the most popular topics so far are productivity, mental performance, resilience, grit, that certainly is the stuff that people want to know more about. And I think you could wrap a lot of that into what Dermot talked about. Plus, you just sound like a good guy. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing that I've realised is that if you don't see that email about, you know, here's this week's newsletter about um, audio stuff that I subscribe to, if you don't see that in your inbox, you don't open it and waste time on it. You, You actually only go to that when you want to go to that. So a lot of the things he talked about, I think, were, were really worthwhile. God of Rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high-voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in rock. And speaking of wasting time, you've been spending time on the World Wide Webs. What have you found for us this week, Robbo? I found a great lesson of rock from Randy Backman from Backman Turner Overdrive. BTO, you ain't seen nothing yet. One of my greatest mistakes. Song was not supposed to be on the album. 
I mixed one version to play for my brother because I was teasing him because he stuttered a little bit. And put that song aside. And when the head of our label came in to hear us and hear the album, because he always did that to see what would make it on certain radio formats, we played him the album called Not Fragile, the third BTO album. And um, he said, pretty good. I like the song Not Fragile. You guys are doing something here. I think we can call it heavy rock. Uh, I hear a band like Black Sabbath doing stuff like that. And, uh, but I don't hear a single for Top 40 Radio. And I said, that's it, the album's done. He said, well, I kind of like roll on down the highway, but I really want to hear something that's going to follow, let it ride and taking care of business. So I stuttered my way through this song. Charlie Fatch took it out and heard it. He was the head of the label, and he said, this is magic. I haven't heard anything like this on the radio. You must put it on the album. I said, you're nuts. The guitars aren't even in tune. I'm stammering and doing bad Van Morrison impressions. I don't know what I'm doing. I, this isn't even a song. I haven't even written it. I'm just bl blurting out lyrics. And he said, no, it's charming. I, I discovered Maggie Mae for Rod Stewart, and that shouldn't have been a single because it was like seven and a half minutes long. Believe me, this would be a career song. And I said, what does that mean? He said, you'll be singing it every day of your life, and you'll be grateful to sing it every day of your life. That and taking care of business are going to be your songs. Well, this song reminds me of like when something happens musically, that you would call a mistake. It's happening for a reason. Embrace it. If something happens to you, you're going home, you have a flat tire, your shoelace breaks, you trip, you fall down. Everything happens for, for a reason. Just like go, it's, somebody's giving you a ride. They're taking you out of the way. And so this took me out of the way as they're taking care of business. It just, it takes you somewhere, you look back on years and go, wow, if I hadn't have done that, or if I would have done this and that, my life would be different, but I really like where I am now with what's going on. That is a cracking piece, and I will put the link to that whole interview into the show notes. One question, which is, comes from the French for question for you, Robbo, is you listened to that, and we have listened to that a number of times in the studio. What have you done with that? What have you applied to the studio having heard that interview? Well, I've actually looked at what hits the cutting room floor, to be honest with you. It's funny. It's, it made me think about all these things that we cut out of, um, you know, other paid podcasts that I do and other work that I do, stuff that hits the cutting room floor and how I can use that. And I actually used that this week for uh, a station in Singapore that I do some imaging for. They sent me the voiceover session from their voiceover guy and there was actually some outtakes that worked quite well. So even though it wasn't a script or wasn't sp written specifically to be a piece on air, I actually turned it around and used it quite effectively. So it, that's what it made me think of. And we are going to do a special show for Rocktober, which is all the outcuts that hit the hit the studio floor here from AP Lofty. <laughs> but it, oh, it, 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 won't be, it won't be for one for the kiddies. Do we need permission for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my take on what Randy talked about. I got three bits I'm going to take from to close the show. The first thing is you've got to be open to new ideas and they're everywhere around us, even in a stutter. We need to always be open to what is happening around us, seeing it and hearing it really listen because that, whatever it may be, could be the start of a great idea. The second thing I thought of, which I love when we do lessons of rock with artists like this, is when you create, create for yourself. Don't set out to write a popular pop song 
or create something to satisfy others. Be a true artist and create what's in your heart and mind and express what's in you artistically, whether it be in business or in music, because that song was just something he did because he enjoyed it and he found something, but he wasn't doing it to express that to be for somebody else. And the third thing, just to finish this up, that I thought of was that, and it's something we have played on the show before from Jocko, who is Jocko Willink, who is a Navy SEAL who does a very, very popular podcast called The Jocko Podcast. He said, when things are going bad, then there's going to be some good that's going to come from it. And that mistake, as you said, turned into one of the biggest hits for them ever. <laughs> and... Most importantly, one of the greatest air guitar tracks of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's more the point, isn't it? Especially at two o'clock on a Sunday morning at the pub. So let's play it and get out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>